I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 22nd, 2013. Coming up, we'll hear from CU scientist Diane McKnight about scientific discoveries from the bottom of the world and what the threat of a government shutdown in the future would mean to scientists working in Antarctica and to us all. And George Johnson, a science writer, will discuss his new book, The Cancer Chronicles, and how this mysterious disease is hardly just a modern-age phenomenon. Think back to the dinosaurs. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It may be too late for most of us to become elite chess players, at least according to last week's How on Earth interview with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, but it's not too late to learn. And it's good for us, too. Researchers at the University of Texas at Dallas have found that learning mentally demanding skills, such as photography or, presumably, chess, may keep our minds sharp as we age, more so than more familiar activities like listening to classical music, word puzzles, or socializing. Of three groups of adults who were given tasks of either learning new skills, engaging in familiar activities at home, or socializing, the group that learned new skills won out with improvements in memory. So, want to keep that mind sharp? Consider tossing aside the word puzzle this week and picking up a how-to manual. You may recall the large meteor that streaked across the Russian skies on February 15th near the city of Chelyabinsk. The major damage was not due to the meteor hitting anything, but from the shock wave that ended up breaking windows in buildings and people being injured by the flying glass. The meteor exploded at an altitude of about 20 kilometers, and although tens of thousands of pieces have been found scattered around the countryside, only small fragments have been discovered until recently, when a half-ton rock was retrieved from a lake near Ground Zero. This location was first suspected when photos were shown of a mysterious large circular hole in the ice of Lake Cherbukol near the predicted impact path. Scientists on Wednesday recovered from the lake what could be the largest part of the meteorite that reached the ground. Using a giant steel yard balance, scientists found that the rock weighed in at 570 kilograms, more than one ton. According to the New York Times, it took seven months of searching and a detailed sonar analysis to pinpoint its location at a depth of about 40 feet and covered by about eight feet of silt. It then took another month of planning and work to prepare to lift it last week. The event was broadcast live on television and is available online. You can find the link at our website, howonearthradio.org. We like to look back in science history and share some important milestones, and here's one of them. On this day in 1968, Apollo 7 safely splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean after orbiting the Earth 163 times. It was the first mission in the United States Apollo program to carry a crew into space. It was also the first American space flight to carry astronauts into low Earth orbit after a cabin fire killed Apollo 1 crew in 1967.
You're listening to KGNU Radio's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Joel Parker. The temporary government shutdown sent chills up the spines and put holes in bank accounts of so many people, including federally funded scientists. Despite the reopening of government, the threat of another shutdown still looms. Among the scientists still reeling from the shutdown and worried about their future research are those who spend time in Antarctica. Our new How on Earth contributor, radio producer Brian Calvert, is with us in the studio this morning. He's been keeping up with one Antarctica expedition from the Institute for Alpine and Arctic Research, or INSTAR, at the University of Colorado Boulder. What's the latest, Brian? Thanks, Joel. The shutdown put a lot of U.S. science in danger. One of the reasons is that much of our research is funded by the government's National Science Foundation, including these Antarctic expeditions. On Friday, I spoke to Diane McKnight, who's an ecologist at CU Boulder and a researcher at NSTAR. She runs a long-term study of what they call extreme streams. These are streams that come from the melting glaciers in Antarctica, where, there, where very few plants grow. But what does grow there, like microbes and algae, can tell us a lot about our own water ecosystems, and even other planets. As of now, it looks like her team is going to be able to complete this year's research, so it could have been worse for them. I asked McKnight to describe Antarctica and her research, and then we talked a bit about what the shutdown almost meant. It's this uh, beautiful, stark, striking environment, and we can see some processes and understand how streams and lakes work in a clear way because of the absence of plants. And describe what it means long-term research. What does that mean and what are its implications here? Well, ecological processes take place, systems change over many years. So the long-term idea is to collect the monitoring data, not just of precip and temperature and stream flow, but the ecological data that helps us understand how ecosystems change, how they work at these timescales. I should also mention that these systems are relevant for understanding the possibility of life on Mars. And so you've been going down there for years and years and years. When you heard the news of the government shutdown, what was your initial reaction? Well, we were concerned. I'd like to emphasize that as Antarctic scientists, we plan and we make more plans and we're continually planning. It's a very dynamic environment. Uh, sometimes when we're there in the summer, it's not sunny, it's uh, cold, and there's hardly any stream flow at all. Sometimes it's warm and very sunny for a week, and then suddenly the streams are as high as Boulder Creek. Not during the flood, but uh, pretty high. So we don't, every year we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so we're continually planning. So as soon as we heard about these developments, we started planning again. How far behind are you at this point? Oh, we're probably in the one or two week, maybe three week behind scenario. And so uh, we 
instead of getting set up in the field camp and then turning on the stream gauges, we can turn on the stream gauges from, um, we're based out of McMurdo Station and do that as a catch-up strategy. Were you, originally, were you facing the prospect of an interruption of uh, data, the, the yearly data? Was that a fear? Well, um, we were worried that if it were a six-week delay, and there's a risk with if it had been a month or three-week delay and the dream had started flowing sooner than usual of losing record. So do you think it's safe to say that since you guys are basically expert planners on logistics, that this kind of impediment was probably less stressful for you than it could have been? Well, potentially. Many of the research projects are funded for for three years, a standard research grant, and often you have two year a two-year field season. And certainly I've had projects like that in the past that are very ambitious and uh, have a short window and to have the initial part of the field season truncated can be particularly challenging. So I don't want to paint too rosy a picture overall for the entire U.S. Antarctic uh, program's field season. You know, this will have a big impact in that sense. Some projects, they must be back at NSF thinking, can we really pull them off if they start now? But at this point, for your for your project, you feel pretty good. I'm uh, I'm an optimist, and I, I I'm feeling very relieved that the government is open, and not just on the for our research, but overall, and many people were dependent on on the government being uh, functioning and addressing people's needs around the country. So it's good news overall. And do you think the shutdown itself put a little bit more attention on how many things the government does that kind of rely on it just kind of like continuing to function, especially in terms of science? I feel like this might have put that into the public eye a little bit more. Do you do you have, do you have a sense of that? Yes, I agree that um, the Antarctic science always captures people's attention and uh, the Antarctic is like a window into how we as a global community are changing our world. And so I think the public understood that not keeping track of that would be a bad outcome and that they understood how harsh an environment it is and uh, that it's a challenge to do science there and that people, the, the image of the staff, the support staff leaving Antarctica and the scientists not going to Antarctica was a very clear picture of the U.S. is not able to do science. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on How on Earth, um, and good luck in the next weeks. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, we'll keep you posted. Thanks so much, Brian, for that report. My pleasure.
You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Cancer is something that has touched, if not ravaged, many of our lives. And many books have been written about the race for a cure for cancer. A new book called The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery, is not one of those books. Its author, science writer George Johnson, takes readers more on a quest to understand cancer on a cellular level, how it begins with one renegade cell that divides, mutates, and can become a tumor. Johnson also digs deep into history, a field called paleo-oncology, to learn that not only our ancient human ancestors had cancer, but even some dinosaurs suffered from tumors. Johnson's approach is as philosophical and poetic as it is scientifically rigorous. It's also very personal. Johnson begins with his then-wife's frightening diagnosis of metastatic cancer, and he describes in the end the heroic and gripping death of his brother from carcinoma. Johnson is a former staff writer and editor at the New York Times, the author of several other science books, and he's on the line from his office in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, George, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So maybe start with just how you dove into this topic, which is quite different from your many others. Yes, uh, it's very different. Um, I think my... One of my best-known books is called The Ten Most Beautiful Experiments, and one of the ones before that was on quantum computing. So cancer was a whole new territory to me, and uh, I first became fascinated by it about a decade ago, and both fascinated and scared to death, because that was when, when um, my wife at the time, Nancy, was diagnosed with the uh, metastatic cancer that you mentioned, and you know this was just something... Like so many diagnoses that came out of the blue, and it was um, many weeks before they knew where in the body the cancer had originated. They only knew that it was um, causing cancer cells to uh, clog up one of her lymph nodes. Yeah. Boy, and we hear so much that cancer is on the rise in our modern age, and that it's, well, that it's a relatively modern phenomenon, and and particularly that environmental factors, those non-hereditary play a big role, but you, with all the studies you cite, give ample evidence that that's really not the case. So talk about how you learned that, indeed, cancer goes, well, first way back, <laughs> way into prehistory, and that it that's really seems to be more random than many think. Yes, I, one of the big surprises for me was that when you adjust for the expanding size of the population and the fact that more people now live longer, they live long enough to get cancer, you adjust for those factors and you adjust for smoking because the introduction of cigarettes around the turn of the 20th century and their wild popularity has caused an anomalous amount of cancer. But you adjust for those things and it's not clear that the base rate of cancer was any different than it was in uh, ancient and even prehistoric times like some of the cases that I write about in the book. And you can even trace cancer back to uh, the Jurassic Age. Uh, to a dinosaur. Um, there was a dinosaur bone found in um, northwestern Colorado, and uh, it showed the signs of a metastatic bone tumor, one that began elsewhere in the dinosaur's body and then metastasized. What kind of dinosaur was this, by the way? They never identified they the type of dinosaur, only that it was a dinosaur and they were able to date it to the Jurassic. I think when I saw you a couple of years ago, you were actually on your way to a museum in western Colorado. To look yeah, at I was, I was, uh, yeah, and, and to Dinosaur National Monument. I wanted to drive through this area and be a, 
able to see what it looks like so I could describe it in my book and use that as a way to introduce some of the, the big themes that I deal with in the next uh, couple hundred pages. And one of those, as you mentioned, is that uh, cancer actually seems to have remained at a fairly, fairly steady background rate throughout history, which is really not surprising when you start reading about just what cancer is. And the environmental carcinogens, even though I was sure that that was a huge factor, it turns out that there's little evidence that uh, that's more than a minor, minor component. A minor component, meaning that there's actually not just a, a correlation, but a, a causal link? Well, there, it's all correlations. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, I mean, there are causal leaks in experiments uh, with, with rats, for example, in lab mice, where they give megadoses to to lab animals, and they can, they can show what comes pretty close to a causal link. But with people, it has to be correlations in epidemiology. And what this has showed again and again, that the percentage of cancer, say, in the United States, uh, that's caused by environmental toxins is perhaps 3 or 4%. It's just a tiny, tiny fraction of a big pie chart. Boy, so are we just about as likely to get cancer from drinking three cups of Joe <laughs> coffee a day than living oh, no. near a toxic dump? You do refer to the 19 well, or 17 carcinogens are, in coffee. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You read that a lot. I mean, there are there's carcinogens in broccoli. There's all of these chemicals, but none of those things are are, are giving people a lot of cancer, um, if any. I mean, coffee. Is a great example, but really, you know, there's just no evidence that that's a significant factor in people getting cancer. The thing is, the body has evolved protections against mutagens, against uh, substances or phenomenon that break DNA, and that's when cancer begins with these mutations. And um, you know, so our bodies have developed these safeguards, and also, no matter how many carcinogens there may be in a cup of coffee, each dose, even for a pretty heavy coffee drinker, is really minuscule. It's, um, it's just not something you need to worry about. Like even if you have five cups. <laughs> well, you're multiplying As we're sipping five, coffee here, we got to know. Yeah, you're multiplying five by a vanishingly tiny fraction of a risk, you know, with many zeros in front of the one, in front of the decimal point. So, so at the same time, I don't want to underestimate some of the potential risks of a lot of the environmental toxins. Oh, no. I imagine I'm, this is this kind of controversial. I know you point to many studies, yeah. including a, a New York State study, right? Oh, well, uh, Love Canal. I mean, you know, this is like the, it's kind of like the classic uh, toxic waste dump. In fact, it was the, uh, the toxic waste site that was discovered with a neighborhood built right on top of it in an elementary school that really led to the Superfund legislation. All these people were evacuated, and 30 years later, the epidemiologists went and found as many of the people that they could, and they determined when you adjusted for all the factors you have to adjust for, you know, like smoking, for example, in old age, that the people who lived at Love Canal and grew up in Love Canal didn't have any more cancer than the general population. Now, now, none of that means that toxic wastes are good, and I think that they're not <laughs> regulated nearly as heavily as they should be, mm -hmm. but there's very, very little case this is a significant factor in giving people cancer. 
Boy, so when you talk about the randomness, I know <laughs> I was really struck by so many passages in the book that sort of show your wonder that we all don't have it. I mean, the chances of everyone getting it, just given the survival instinct of, of cancer cells. So I actually, I, I've wanted you to read, I think it's the last, it's the last paragraph in your book that just shows really what happens on a cellular oh, level sure. and the wonder about it. Yeah, let me get that here. Yeah, what, one thing that struck me during the time I was writing this one moment was that the most powerful carcinogen is randomness. So the last paragraph... Inside my body, 10 trillion cells are battling the same inevitable slump toward entropy. It's eerie to think that inside each one, invisible to the eye, so much is happening. The cell doesn't know it has DNA or RNA or telomeres or mitochondria. It doesn't know that A fits with T and C with G, or that CTG stands for the amino acid leucine, or GCT for alanine. These molecular beads strung together to make proteins. There are no labels, no genetic alphabet written anywhere. There are no instructions. Somehow it all just works. And when it doesn't, we rage against the machine. <laughs> That's powerful. So huh. just one other thing then. What, what, I know if you could wave your magic wand or have a sense of um, what's the future of, of cancer and cancer research. I know, as I indicated, this is not a book about a cancer cure, nor even the search for one. Well, yeah, there'll never be a cure. They're, 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 they'll, we'll continue to make, you know, we being scientists, uh, scientists will continue to make incremental advances against cancer. They've been very successful uh, with childhood cancers, which are really, you know, the most important to be dealing with. But if you live to a certain age and something else doesn't kill you, you're going to get cancer. It's just an inevitable part of being complex, multicellular creatures living in a universe that's ruled by entropy. <laughs> We're not just yeast. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming thank on the show. You. That was George Johnson, author of the new book, The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. You can learn more about it at his website, talaya.net slash chronicles. That's T-A-L-A-Y-A dot net slash chronicles. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Beth Bartell. Thanks to Beth also for her headline contribution. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Michael Brecker and Noreen Nireen. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to the howonearthradio.org website and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.